Good afternoon. It is a blessing. Uh, it's truly a joy to be able to be here today uh, with brethren. You know, I'm encouraged by you every time we get together. Uh, I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have to, to praise our Father, our King, together, uh, and now to study from His Word. Over the past two months, we collectively have walked up to the doorsteps of about 2,500 homes uh, to distribute uh, door hangers or, or flyers. Um, and at very least, uh, that is getting the word out that we here are an active group that love people, that want to spread God's word, that have a passion for sharing the gospel. But as we walked up to all those different homes, each home is a little bit different. Uh, each home has different people living inside it. And you get many different responses. Many times as we were walking out, uh, if somebody was out in their yard, most people were very friendly and, and welcoming, had some good conversations in garages or front porches. Um, but then, understandably so, some are, are more suspicious or skeptical, skeptical of, of anybody coming into their yard. Some had very adamant no trespassing or no soliciting signs. Uh, some had very faithful guard dogs that would uh, alarm uh, their owners the, the moment we set foot on their front steps. Um, but if we were to go to every single one of those homes and to actually knock on the door, and that, that's something that, that I have and I, I'm sure many of you have been involved in before evangelizing through door knocking, but if we were to do that at all those different homes, I'm sure we would have gotten a, a vast variety of responses. Uh, and as I walked up a lot of long driveways this last week, uh, it allowed me a lot of time to, to consider our, our theme for today, uh, knock and the door will be open to you. I, I want you to envision for a moment uh, this picture of knocking on God's door. What, what would it be like to approach his home, to knock on his door? What kind of response would we expect to get? Uh, do you think God is the kind of individual that uh, you know, would not want to come to the door, would, would be annoyed by us knocking, uh, would resent the invasion of his privacy, or, or would look with suspicion or disdain upon anybody who would come into to his yard? Well, Jesus tells us here in Matthew 7 that that's not the case at all, uh, that God is one who wants to welcome us. Verse 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. God is eager to open his door to us. God's door is always open to those who are genuinely seeking him. And yet coming into the presence of the creator of the universe is not just a casual thing. Um, gaining access to the throne of all the Almighty King is a big deal. And seeking God is not an effortless activity. And so, how exactly do we balance the ideas of approaching a loving and welcoming God and approaching a holy and righteous and exalted God? That's what I want us to consider today as we think about this idea of knocking on God's door. How do we balance the ideas of, of his 
desire to bless us and, and the responsibility that we have to seek him. And starting off, I want us to emphasize from this passage very clearly that God desires to bless us. God genuinely wants our greatest good. Now, this is, is very contrary to what many of the pagans would have thought about the gods. Uh, among polytheism through, throughout history, many times the people did not view the gods as favorably inclined toward humans. In fact, many times the gods would kind of resent their existence. And the favor of the gods was not freely offered, but it had to be earned by feeding the gods by expressions of, of homage and devotion to somehow win the favor of these beings who are not naturally inclined to be favorable towards us. In fact, uh, in the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is one of the oldest uh, flood stories that, that we have outside of the, the scriptures, the, this Babylonian flood story talks about how the gods uh, talked together and decided to destroy man because he was noisy and he was annoying. And so they conferred together to, to wipe out man with this great flood. And yet there's one man who finds out about this plot by the gods and he outwits the gods and he builds this gigantic boat, um, which is a cube, by the way, which I, I don't think would work very well on the sea. Um, but, and... Finally, when all of mankind has been wiped out except for this one man who outwitted the gods, he gains the favor of the gods once again by sacrificing to them and feeding them, which that's not something that they had thought through. Uh, they just destroyed their food source without realizing it. And so the Epic of Gilgamesh says that they flock around his sacrifice like flies uh, around uh, meat. And so uh, this picture in the pagan world is that man is annoying, we don't want anything to do with him, uh, and here the uh, only way that this man is delivered is by his own wit and overcoming the God's plans. Well, contrast that for a moment to the record that we have of Noah and the flood. What happens there? Well, we have God, and it says he is deeply grieved at the wickedness that he sees among men. Um, that man has taken his perfect creation and corrupted it so much. And so God determines in his justice and his righteousness to, to wipe away this wickedness, and yet he in his mercy reaches out to Noah, and he delivers Noah to maintain uh, or, or to preserve this remnant of goodness within his creation, despite Noah's imperfections. And so we see God is the one that delivers man, that does not want to destroy him. And in the Old Testament, animal sacrifices are not simply man's way of winning the favor of God. In fact, animal sacrifices are God's provision of mercy to man. That here, justly, God would have to execute his uh, wrath upon mankind. He would have to, to bring about the just penalty for sin, and yet he provides sacrifices to mankind as a way of providing atonement. Uh, and in the Old Testament, in a sense, a, a temporary atonement, that he might be able to be just and be merciful to them. And so when we come to God, we don't have this idea of him you know, just reluctantly 
reaching out to man, of putting up with man. God genuinely desires to extend his mercy. Despite his justice and his righteousness and his holiness, he wants to extend his mercy and his love towards mankind. And nowhere do we see that more clearly than on the cross. God sacrifice so that we might be saved. Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? The greatest demonstration of God's desire to bless us, of his mercy and his love towards mankind, is the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 through 10, earlier in the book, we read about how God reached out and sent his son to die for us when we were sinners, when we were helpless, when we were enemies of God, when we had nothing to offer, when there were no endearing or redeeming qualities about us, nothing worthy of love. God was willing to pay the greatest price possible, to send his own son to shed his blood upon the cross so that we might not have to be punished in his justice, but that we might have a way of receiving mercy, of receiving cleansing, of being restored in fellowship with him. God, in sending Jesus to die on the cross, was saying to me, you are worth saving no matter the cost. God desires to bless us. Here in Romans 8, it says God is for us. God is not against us. God is for us. He desires our greatest good. He desires a relationship with us. He desires for us to be his children, to be part of his family, and he is willing to pay the greatest price imaginable to make that possible. When we look at the cross, there should be no question in our mind that God desires to bless us. In James chapter 1 in verse 5, we read, but if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him. When we seek God's blessing and guidance in our lives, do, do we sometimes feel that, that he is reluctant to give it? Do we think, well, I, I'm coming back again and again and again and asking for his guidance, asking for his help. You know, he must be getting really tired with me. Well, that's not the picture that we have in the scripture. God does not look down on us and say, well, what is it this time? Is he coming back again already? What, what do you want? That's not the God that we serve. The God that we serve is generous and is willing to give his help, to give his blessing without reproach. He genuinely desires to bless us, and he desires for us to seek that blessing from him. He desires for us to ask. He wants us to knock at his door. He's waiting to open the door for us. Sometimes as we fall to sin, as we struggle with our sins, uh, sometimes we can start feeling that, that God doesn't want us to come back to him. That we, we've just gone too far. This is too many times. We've reached some type of limit to God's mercy. Uh, and we just can't come back to God. That's a lie. That is the devil's lie. And Luke 15, Jesus spends an entire chapter talking about God's desire to forgive, God's desire to welcome the sinner back, to welcome the repentant heart. In Luke 15 and verse 7, 
Jesus says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Brother, nothing brings more joy to the heart of God than a heart that is willing to come back to him to bring our failures before him, to bring our brokenness before him and to uh, entreat uh, reconciliation with him, to ask for him to restore our fellowship. God's grace is not for the deserving. God's grace is for those who genuinely desire to return to his arms. Later on in Luke 15, we read the story about what we often call the, the prodigal son who asks for his father's inheritance early. Basically what he's saying is, uh, you know, can you go ahead and die already so I can get my inheritance? (laughs) He completely abandons his relationship with his father, takes his inheritance early, dishonors his father, goes out and wastes it on degrading pleasures, wastes all his father's possessions. And finally, in after having wasted all this and coming to his senses, he returns to his father. Now, what, what type of attitude do we think uh, a father would have in that case? You know, fr- from the son's perspective, he's thinking, look what I've done. I, I have completely abandoned my relationship with my father. I have dishonored him by basically telling him I wish he was dead, taking my inheritance, wasting it, um, And so he returns in humility to his father, but what is his father's response? In verse 20, we read, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Despite all that his son had done, what is our heavenly father's response to us? He runs to embrace him. He kisses him. We see he greatly celebrates his return. There is nothing that brings more joy to the heart of God than for one who is dead to become alive, for one who is lost to be found. This is how God views us. This is how he views me. This is our story. And God here is our father who is waiting to welcome us into his loving embrace. He wants us to return to him. Uh, recognizing what we have done in repentance, returning to him. And he is eager to welcome us back, to open the door for us. But as we consider God's eagerness to bless us, we need to recognize as well that God not only desires to bless us, he desires a certain amount of, of seeking on our part. You know, this passage doesn't just say that God um, is going to give, that that we will find, that that the door will be opened. It says, ask, and it will be given. It says, seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. There is a responsibility on our part as well, and God wants us to recognize the great value of what it is he has to offer us. Notice in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, if you look back in verse 6, 
What, what is the immediate context here? In verse 6, it says, Do not give what is holy to the dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under feet, under their feet, and turn and tear you in pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Here we have a contrast between the, the swine who don't recognize the value of what they're being given and are going to trample over it to the one who is genuinely seeking, the one who recognized the value of what God has to offer. God does not want to give his pearls to those who are going to trample over them. God wants to extend his grace to those who will appreciate the value of what he is offering us. Um, And it's not that we somehow have to earn that, but God does want us to recognize the value of what he is freely giving to us. But in context, what is it that we're asking for? What is it that we're seeking? Uh, Whose door are we knocking on? Is it that we're simply asking here for wealth and prosperity, that we're seeking fame or or power, that we're knocking at the door of, of business opportunities or our personal goals and dreams? Is that what this passage is about? In the context of the Sermon on the Mount, I think what Jesus is talking about asking for and seeking and knocking at is something much different. Uh, In James chapter 4 and verse 3, we read, You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasures. Not every door will be opened. Not every dream will be fulfilled. Not every request will be granted. That's not what Jesus is promising here in Matthew 7. But in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, if you go back earlier to Matthew 6, when Jesus um, presents the, the Lord's Prayer, as we often call it, or the model prayer, what type of things does he instruct them to be asking for? He says in verse 10, Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Down in verse 12 and 13, he tells them to ask for forgiveness, to ask for guidance within their life from the Lord. Those are the type of things that Jesus here instructs them to be asking for. What about seeking in the Sermon on the Mount? What does he talk about seeking? Look in Matthew chapter 6, verse 32 and 33. It says, For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, talking about the uh, provisions of physical life, But he says, for your heavenly father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. In the context here, that's what Jesus is instructing them to seek, his kingdom, his righteousness. And then when you think about this idea of knocking on the door, what what is it that we're seeking entrance to? Well, if you look later on in chapter 7, Verse 13 and 14, he talks about a narrow way, a narrow gate that leads where? That leads to life. And he says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, it's not that we shouldn't be asking for other things. It's not that we shouldn't at times be seeking other blessings from the Lord. But in the context here, I think the primary point being made is that God will give the kingdom, God will give life, God will give himself to those who are seeking him, who are asking for it, those who are knocking at the gates of, of his home. Ultimately, what God desires to give us is not just his stuff, 
What God desires to give us is himself. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, a parallel teaching of Jesus here, notice what Jesus says in Luke 11 and verse 13. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Was it, what is it that God here desires to give us? He desires to give us himself, fellowship with him, his spirit within us. God doesn't just want to give us his stuff. He wants to give us himself. And we see a, a similar idea in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 20 as Jesus is speaking to the church in Laodicea. He kind of reverses this picture. In Matthew 7, where we're the one doing the knocking, here in Revelation 3, Jesus is the one doing the knocking. He's seeking out us. Notice what he says there in Revelation 3 verse 20. He says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. What is Jesus seeking? What is he knocking at the, the door of, of our life or our heart to find? Fellowship with us. That he might come in and dine with us. That he might have companionship with us. God doesn't want us to simply come up to his door and knock so that we can get some goodies from him and then go on our way. That, that's not the picture that we have here. God desires for us to come and knock at his door that he might welcome us in so he can then have fellowship with us, that he might give his spirit to us. What we need to be seeking is God himself. And if we want to receive God's blessings, um, brother, you, you can't really receive God's blessings, or at least the spiritual blessings that God desires to give us, without receiving God himself, without seeking God himself. We need to be careful that, that what we're seeking is not things that we can spend on our own pleasures, that we're not seeking God with wrong motives, but that we're genuinely seeking him. And the one who seeks God will always have the door open. God wants to give himself to us. If we're genuinely seeking him, we can be sure that by his grace, he will be found by us. But one other thing from this passage that I think is vitally important as we consider our responsibility is that God wants us to trust in him. It's not just that we seek God, but we need to seek him in faith. We must trust in his goodness and in his grace. Read again with me verse 9 through 11 of this passage. Jesus says, Or what man is there among you who, when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, he will not give him a snake, will he? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? What God is asking for here is that we have a childlike trust in him. And we have a childlike dependence upon his provisions for our life. Now, most of us have kind of grown out of that stage of childlike dependence in our life, haven't we? we we've learned to be independent. We've learned to be self-sufficient. We don't want to rely on anybody else. We don't want to rely on other people to do our thinking for us or make our decisions. We don't want anybody else to have control over our lives. And... To some extent, in our relationships with other people, uh, that's 
finding good. We, we need to, to gain a certain amount of independence uh, as we grow to adulthood. But when it comes to our relationship with God, we need to go back to that childlike dependence. We need to go back to that childlike trust of him that the things that he wants to give us are good. We need to let him take full control. And this ultimately is a condition to receiving his blessings. In James chapter 1, we already read verse 5 about how God gives to all generously and without reproach. But in verse 6, it goes on to say, but we must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect that you will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. It's not just important that we seek God, but that we seek him in the right way. God doesn't want us to seek him like an insurance policy. God doesn't want us to approach him like a lottery ticket or, or like a vending machine. God wants us to approach him as a loving father, trusting in him, trusting that he will hear our requests and that he cares about us and that he knows what is best for us. It's that type of heart that God desires before he will be able to bless us in the way that he wants to. He needs us to trust in him to trust that what he's setting before us is what we truly need. He wants us to have a single-minded devotion, a wholehearted trust. And this doesn't just mean that we trust in his power to do what we want him to do. This means we trust in his wisdom and we trust in his will. For example, consider Daniel chapter 3, the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that they were unwilling to bow before this idol that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And because of that, they are now in threat uh, of being thrown into a fiery furnace, meeting a very painful end. But as Nebuchadnezzar brings them before him and gives them a last warning here. Notice their response to Nebuchadnezzar. In Daniel 3, starting verse 16, it says, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Notice verse 18. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Is this kind of a, a last-minute expression of doubt on the part of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? He, he's going to, but if he doesn't, well, no. I think what we see here with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is a greater measure of faith. That God is able to. There's no question in our mind that he has the power to. But even if he chooses not to, we're going to be faithful to him. We trust in God even to the point of us dying, if that's what God wills. If we can bring more glory to him through dying, that's what we'll do. We not only need to trust in God's power to deliver us, God's power to, to heal us, we need to trust that God's will is best and that what he wants to do with our lives 
is what is in our best interest. True faith is not just believing that God can give me what I want. True faith is believing that what God wants is best. I think this is the lesson that Job learned as well. And uh, in a few weeks, we're going to start a study of the the book of Job on on Tuesday nights. Uh, We'll here skip to the end of the book and give kind of a preview of what I think the, the overall lesson of the book is. But here we see Job loses all of his wealth, all of his possessions, and on one day uh, in a freak accident all of his children die. He is struck with a a painful disease with boils from the the, uh, sole of his feet to the the top of his head. His wife uh, turns against him in a way, telling him to curse God and die. And his faith is very severely tested the point that he begins to question God. Question, God, why are you doing this? Uh, if, if I'm righteous and I haven't done anything wrong, uh, then you know, something's not right with the courts of heaven to allow such a thing as this to happen. What is God's response at the end of the book? Does God come in and say, Job, by the way, you didn't know this, but back in chapter 1, <laughs> Uh, I, I had this conversation with Satan, and this is what he said, and this is what I said, and this is why you're going through all the suffering. The answer to the book of Job is not in chapter 1. It's at the end of the book. And what is God's answer to Job? At the beginning of God's speech in chapter 38, it says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up the loin, your loins like a man, and I will ask you, and you will instruct me. And so for several chapters, God asks question after question after question to Job. What's the point that God is making? Job, you're talking about a lot of things that you don't understand. You don't have the knowledge to stand in judgment over how I run the universe. And so... At the end of all of this, what is the conclusion? What lesson does Job learn? Chapter 42, verse 1 through 3, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Job recognized, I've been talking about a whole lot of things that I don't know. I don't know why you've allowed this to happen, but I don't need to know. What I do know is that you're in control, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And that's enough. When it comes to running our lives. Many times we want to run our lives. We want to be the one to to have our hands on the reins, to to determine the direction that our life goes. That's not how it works. We're not capable of our own, of of running our own lives. We're not capable of making a, a judgment and assessment about everything that happens in our life and knowing why things happen the way they do. The answer is to trust God because he does know, to surrender to God, because he is in control. And the New Testament confirms 
this idea. In Romans chapter 8, in verse 26, we read, In the same way the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Two verses later, in verse 28, it says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We don't always know what to ask God. We don't know what we need. God knows what we need. What we do know, Paul says in verse 28, is that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Prayer is not about God accomplishing our purposes for us. Prayer is about God accomplishing his purposes through us. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Sometimes we may feel like God has given us a stone. We may feel like God has given us a serpent. I'm sure Job did. And yet what God is calling upon us to do here is to trust him as our loving father. That whatever it is that comes up in our life, whatever challenges we face, if we are willing to surrender that to him, if we are willing to respond to that in the way that he would desire for us to, it can ultimately be for our good. Maybe not our temporal good. Maybe not our earthly pleasure but it can be for our eternal good. Do we trust that? Do we trust in him? We don't know what we truly need. Our requests need to be filtered through God's wisdom and through his will. But we can know that he will work all things together for good. That doesn't mean all things will be good, but all things will work together for good to those who love God, who are committed to his purpose, who are called according to his purpose. Paul Earnhardt, in his book on the Sermon on the Mount, says this about uh, this portion uh, of Matthew 7. He says, The thought of being able to ask God for anything with absolute assurance of receiving it would be a frightening one. Alec Motyer expresses it well. If it were the case that whatever we ask, God was pledged to give, then I, for one, would never pray again because I would not have sufficient confidence in my own wisdom to ask God for anything. Paul Earnhardt goes on to say, There are few of us who have not lived long enough to thank our Heavenly Father for prayers that went unanswered. God's not just some Aladdin's lamp. He's not some vending machine that that we press the buttons right and we get what we want. And if he was, we'd be in big trouble. Because we don't have the wisdom to guide our own lives. We don't have the wisdom to know what we need. God knows what we need, and he wants us to trust in him. Are we willing to fully trust in the love of our Heavenly Father, to fully surrender our lives to his will? Uh, If we don't trust in him, if we don't approach him with faith, then we can't receive the blessings that he desires to give us. And so there should be no question in our mind that God wants to bless us, that he desires our greatest good. We don't have to earn his favor. God is favorably inclined toward us already, even to the point that while we were his enemies, while we were still in our sins, he sent his son to die for us. Yet if we are going to open the door, if he is going to open the door and welcome us into his presence, we have to genuinely seek 
him. We have to trust in him. Are you seeking God today? Or are you just drifting through life on autopilot? Are you fully entrusting your life to God, allowing him to take control? Or are you still, in, still trying to, to chart the path of your life on your own? God desires to bless us. God desires to give us the, the fullness of his joy, his peace, his hope. But we can't achieve that on our own. We need to fully surrender to him, to seek him, to let him take control. If you want the joy that only God can offer, if you want the peace that he has promised, if you want the hope of eternal life in his presence someday, then you need to give your life to him. And if you haven't done that, if you're trying to direct your own steps, if you haven't fully entrusted your life, your soul to him, then that's what you need to do today. That's what we desire for you. As there is more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 just person there, will be great joy here um, to see any lost soul come to the Lord. If we can help you in that in any way, if you have strayed from the Lord, if you've never given your life to him, uh, and you need to make that commitment today, we ask that you'll let us know uh, before the service is over.